Welcome to the Easel Studio Podcast. This is the audio version of an episode that was originally broadcast on easel.eu. If you wish to watch rather than listen, go to Easel Campus to see all the episodes on demand. Dear colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome to the Easel Studio, your weekly hepatology broadcast news. My name is Darius Moratpur. I have the pleasure and the privilege to moderate this session on zoonotic hepatitis E, what's hot in 2023. Hepatitis E virus or HEV infection is one of the most common causes of acute hepatitis worldwide. We can distinguish two different settings. On the one hand, HEV genotypes one and two are enterically transmitted from humans to humans and cause primarily waterborne outbreaks and sporadic cases of hepatitis E in resource-limited settings. On the other hand, HEV genotypes 3 and 4 have emerged as primarily porcine zoonosis in middle and high-income areas, including in Europe. In this studio, we shall focus on zoonotic hepatitis E, especially HEV genotype 3 infection. With a wonderful cast of experts, including Patrick Behrendt from Hanover Medical School in Germany, Montserrat Fraga from Lausanne University Hospital in Switzerland, and Eike Steinmann from the University of Bochum in Germany, we shall discuss recent highlights as well as current challenges in basic translational and clinical research on hepatitis E. And so to open this studio, I would like to first ask Montserrat, what kind of uh, advances or highlights you've seen recently in clinical research or clinical care in hepatitis E? Thank you, Darius. I think there is an important paper we have to highlight. It's a Scottish paper. It uh, emphasized the high morbidity and mortality associated with autochthonous hepatitis E. Um, Wallace et al. retrospectively collected and characterized more than 500 patients with a PCR-proven hepatitis E infection from 2013 to 2018 in Scotland. And... Uh, 60% of the patients were hospitalized 3.3 uh, with a 3.3% of mortality and the factors that more uh, strongly predicted this mortality included hematological diseases and cirrhosis 6.7% uh, of the patients developed an acute and chronic liver failure with two uh, of these patients even require a a requiring a liver transplantation and uh, last ribavirin therapy uh, for chronically infected individuals yielded a sustained uh, virological response of 76%, highlighting the, the quotidian difficulties we have in treating immunosuppressed patients who are chronically infected. And I think this uh, paper uh, elegantly puts into light the burden, the burden of zoonotic hepatitis E. Thank you very much. I indeed believe that uh, this uh, paper is important and it sets the stage for discussions that we are going to have later on 
on, on what determines these diverse clinical outcomes of, of hepatitis E. I also believe that the findings are in line uh, with your own observations uh, in Switzerland in, in about 100 patients. We uh, also saw this uh, spectrum of, of, of clinical outcomes, right? Absolutely, absolutely, with an elevated mortality, uh, notably among cirrhotic patients. Patrick, you're an expert in translational research on, on hepatitis E. What caught your attention as, as a highlight uh, recently? So first of all, the studio. So thank you very much for putting this onto the agenda. I think it's very important. But for me, you know, HEV overall is really a shining model when it comes to translational science. You know, we can really bridge nicely with this topic, bench and bedside. And, you know, just like for HCV, just with a delay of 10 to 15 years, you know, we are now at the stage really to develop sufficient models, in vivo, in vitro models, to really study this pathogen and really identify new antiviral strategies, you know. And now we have compound screens going on, drug repurposing library screens, just with a cell culture model. And yeah, hopefully this can be translated in vivo. And, you know, on the other hand, we can also uh, look on patients and learn from those, you know, who cleared the viral infection. You know, we, we now learn something about T cells responses, and you know, there are now people are trying to produce T cells which you know uh, are effective against HEV and work, get them to work in vivo, and also neutralizing antibodies. I mean, we know from from Corona this is a topic, and now you know it swaps over in a way to HEV, and we can use it for the future probably as a therapeutic option. And one thing that also I think is very important to note, and what we learn now really uh, when we look on our patients, is that HEV is not just an, an infection of the liver. You know, we have now this exopathic manifestations, but also we see replication, real replication of the virus in different organs, in particular neuronal cells. You know, uh, you can look spinal cord fluid, you find the virus look in specimen, you know, of neurons, but also semen, testiculars. And, you know, this needs to be further addressed. And I think this is really something where we can still bridge a bench and bedside. And I think overall, we will thereby improve uh, practice and treatment of our patients. Thank you, uh, Patrick. So this is a, a really uh, busy and uh, interesting field with many opportunities for, for translational research. Eike, you're an expert in the molecular virology of hepatitis E. Uh, in terms of basic uh, research in this area, was there anything particular that uh, caught your attention uh, recently? Yeah, first of all, I would also like uh, to say thank you to Darius and Isel for being here today. In the field of basic science, I would need to say probably also due to Corona, there was not so much major achievements in the last years because as you probably guessed, uh, Many virologist labs were also helping in diagnostics and were really um, being in, in Corona active. But there was one highlight, I think, which really is important, uh, shed new light on the replication of hepatitis E virus. We have three open reading frames and the open reading frame one um, encodes for the non-structural proteins important for replication. And it's made um, by a polyprotein, where it's still not clear how it functions. And the study by the lab of Alexander Kloss at Princeton could show earlier this year in 2023 that um, the protease domain, there's a putative protease domain in this OF1 protein, that this is actually not active um, as a protease. It could show that it's important for replication and is pro probably a structural subunit 
but it seems not to be pro um, protease active, which is uh, very important also if you think about track, um, targets and cleavage of this polyprotein. So they could show that it has um, metal ion activity by binding zinc ions, and they also propose to rename this domain that the name of the term of protease is not fully correct anymore. And this also brings important new question. It's still not clear, is this polyprotein cleaved? This protease is not active, probably not by that domain. It could be that other domains of, of one cleave that. It could be cellular proteins that the jury is still out there, or it could be that it's still not cleaved at all. And I think these are important questions in the future to understand the replication machinery, the function of OF1 and hepatitis E virus. That was uh, definitely a very interesting, uh, very interesting paper. I think there has also been a structure out of at least part of this uh, putative uh, uh, protease, which also argued against uh, 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 true protease function. Is that correct, Ike? That's correct, especially with the new tools of AlphaFold. Several studies have been out in the last year, including that one in, in eLife, basically, that also based on the structural information, that it doesn't look like to be in um, protease activity. Are there other viruses that, you know, in case this is not processed, would produce such a huge polyprotein as a replicase, uh, that's a good question. The authors also discuss it, and it could be a novel mechanism to the knowledge of myself and the authors. I think this is not really known um, that the virus works like that. Okay. Well, these were uh, three uh, nice uh, highlights and uh, important developments. Let's delve into open questions and, and, and current challenges. And so one thing I, I would like to ask you, Ike, um, uh, a few years ago, I believe first in Hong Kong uh, and then in Canada, now also in Europe, cases of rat hepatitis E virus infection have been uh, documented in, in patients. What is this rat hepatitis E virus? And, and do you think it's going to be a threat uh, uh, in, in, in Europe? Yeah, yeah, it's a really important question, and I think a lot of people are screening uh, for that uh, virus. It has been originally identified in Germany only in rats, and was thought for a long time to be only replicating in rats until, as you mentioned, these zoonotic um, events happened in Hong Kong, Canada, and Spain. In Hong Kong, this could be directly connected to the transmission of infected rodents in a household living clo in close contact with rats. However, in Canada, this was a healthy individual male, also in Spain, there were no clear transmission routes known. The virus is quite diverse. In sequence homology, only 55% um, um, homolog to the human hepatitis E virus genotype 3. So it's still not clear, basically, how these transmission events occurred. It's important to note that on the diagnostic side, the serology, is, has lower sensitivity um, to the rat strain. Also, the PCR techniques have less sensitivity. So one needs, if you look for the rat hepatitis E virus in blood donors or patients, one has to design specific diagnostics tools to really find that. Therefore, the information is quite scarce. That's why I would recommend further surveillance and, and testing on that. But my gut feeling and personal opinion is, there's at least in Europe not a major threat. In total, we have so far 20 cases reported worldwide. And if an individual is not living close by with rats, I don't see um, a major threat at the moment, in particular in Europe. 
Thank you, Eike. Did you yourself look into samples, um, blood samples or, 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 or stool samples from patients with acute hepatitis of unknown uh, cause? Or do you know of other groups who have done that? Um, yeah, I, I know another group from Regensburg in Germany. They have done that uh, on 200 samples, uh, however, only where they could not find red hepatitis E virus. We are now working with the transfusion department who are doing blood screening testing that they set up the red PCR in a pool testing strategy to look on a broader scale in the population. Okay, so the, the jury is open yeah. and we'll certainly learn more about this uh, in the years to come. But I think also outside of Europe, it's it's an important topic also in other countries and Asian countries, um, basically to see um, how the surveillance is there and um, the rate of positive also animals. We know, for example, in New York, this has been shown in Corona that there are five to eight million rats just in New York City that humans in the other way around infected rats with SARS-CoV-2 uh, SARS and rats have been positive by human transmission to animals. Okay. That's very interesting. So much more to learn and to, to discover. Uh, another important topic is um, prevention of hepatitis uh, E. Uh, and vaccination against hepatitis E. Uh, Patrick, this is a topic that uh, you are very knowledgeable about. So where do we stand uh, with the vaccine against hepatitis E virus? And who do you think should be vaccinated? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And, I, you know, when it comes to HEV vaccination, I think it's really a dilemma. You know, we have we have a very potent vaccine available. It's Hepolin. It's a genotype one based, protein based vaccine. You know that you give three times, and it has shown to be very effective. You know, in China they had a big study, phase three study, I think 2014, and it, they really uh, you know looked on it in, in in a large scale, like including 110,000 individuals. You know, two arms vaccination control, and we now have. So, uh, seen this five years follow up, and you see that you have seven people being uh, infected in the vaccinated group with hepatitis E upon infection uh, vaccination, and only oh, 53, I think, in the control group. So it was highly effective, and also when you model it, you know, long term protection, uh, the vaccinees they had a chance, you know, 50% chance to be protected even after eight years, and you know, when you have other models, even over 30 years. So highly effective and no relevant side effects. So fantastic. But it's only licensed in China and Pakistan so far. And this is critical. And of course, when we want to implement it in Europe, we, we need to face, you know, we have a different situation here. You know, first of all, we have genotypic differences. So in China, we have genotype four. In Europe, we have genotype three. We don't know anything about the protection of genotype three. And, you know, some monkey data suggests that, you know, it could be just a part party protection. And also, when you look on our cohorts that we would like to vaccinate, I mean, this has not been studied in our cohorts that we would like to vaccinate. And this is, of course, our transplanted individuals. You know, it's it's weird because we 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 tell them to to get vaccinated before or after liver transplantation against hepatitis A and B, but not E. Yeah, and I don't understand it, but it's just because it has not been studied and. One thing is really important to note when it comes to this Chinese vaccine and on this big study, because there I mentioned we had like 50 individuals being infected in the control group throughout the study or having a symptomatic infection. 
But when you calculate with the prevalence of infection rates in China, you would end up having 4,800 roughly infection events. And of course, our transplanted individuals, you know, even when they have a sudden infection, they could develop chronic infection. This could be a problem. And Montserrat already mentioned another important cohort, I think, that needs vaccination. And these are patients with underlying liver diseases as they face the risk for a fulminant disease and liver damage and need maybe transplantation. But, you know, there are smaller groups like travelers, for example. I think there it could be something that we could already pursue because, you know, usually when you travel in endemic areas, you have gene type 1, 2, and there probably the vaccine is quite effective. And uh, also one recent development in terms of vaccination is also that there's a second vaccination coming now, and it's now in phase 2 trials in India. But this is also a genotype 1 dependent protein vaccine. So probably we'll face the same issue with this new vaccine as well. Thanks a lot, uh, Patrick. Uh, you, you, you mentioned the high uh, protection uh, efficacy of, of the available vaccine. Um, what is known about um, reinfection in persons who have naturally, uh, um, uh, you know, experienced uh, hepatitis E? Uh, can one get reinfected with uh, genotype 3 HEV? Yeah, it's not known. So this is really a difficult issue, and and uh, yeah, it's um, it's a difficult uh, question to ask and to answer as well. I mean, because uh, you know, also when you come from endemic areas, then you have zero positivity. You know, and the vaccine worked by zero positivity. You know, it protected just the antibodies, but. In these endemic areas, we have zero positivity rates up to 90%, and still you get outbreak situations. And, you know, for our genotype 3, it's difficult to address this. We have some data for transplanted individuals where we know that some level, uh, international units, uh, antibodies, uh, I think five or eight, this can prevent from reinfection. But if you go underneath that, then you are at risk to acquire a second infection. So it might be uh, dependent on the on the antibody, yeah, the body level. Probably. Can I also uh, ask you a brief question? So why do you see why it's so difficult for Western countries, for Europe and USA, to perform that in a genotype three dependent protein vaccine? What are the hurdles um, on on that? Yeah, I wanted to come to that later. I think it's really something to attract companies, you know, to to make to show them really. The, the, the need for that. I mean, this is a big thing. We, we don't have proper data to show them that this is necessary, you know, uh, and this is the critical thing. Yeah. We have these high events of infection rates. I mean, I think, yeah, maybe we touched on that with the blood donation that we have high levels of HDB RNA positivity rates there, but, you know, the majority is just not symptomatic and therefore it's not seeing the problem. Eike, you, you have worked a lot on other means of, of preventing viral infection, on virus inactivation, on uh, disinfection. What is known uh, for hepatitis E virus? A, a question that is often asked, you know, is how long and at what temperature do you need to heat uh, meat uh, for it to be safe, pork meat or game meat? So what is known uh, about virus inactivation and disinfection? 
Yeah, there are some very easy measures, obviously, to prevent this foodborne um, transmission of hepatitis E virus by, by pork meat or swine meat. As you mentioned, it depends a little bit on the diet in on each country uh, where that you do not eat undercooked meat, um, basically. And heating your um, dishes and the swine meat, obviously, is very easy, uh, one easy way to uh, prevent an um, infection, inactivate the virus. There's been really good data on that. so. Um, you should heat the meat like uh, for at least 15 to 20 minutes on seven for 70 degrees, like 80 and 90 degrees. Then you need less minutes on five to 10 minutes. Um, basically is sufficient. This has been shown by Nicole Pavio 10 years ago, even in a swine challenge model of um, heated virus suspension. So this has been nicely, nicely shown. Obviously, hand washing uh, is an easy prevention measure. And if you then look at um, individuals with occupational exposure to hepatitis E virus, this relates to hospitals, but also farming, veterinarians, hunters, uh, hunting wild boars are at a high risk. So their gloves is another easy prevention measure and the, um, also the implementation, obviously, of disinfection. That we have worked a lot on that and it's important to note that normal hand disinfectants are that are based on alcohols do not completely inactivate hepatitis e virus so they can maybe destroy just the envelope form of the quasi-enveloped um, particle but the capsid is untouched and still basically infectious so we could show together with patrick that there are only a few products in on the european market that are able to inactivate also the capsid so you need alcohol and another acid phosphoric acid, for example, to really also destroy the capsid. For surface disinfectants, that's another way that it's more easy. They are more not based on alcohols. They are based on aldehydes, glutaraldehydes, or also ammonium compounds. These are all active um, to inactivate hepatitis E virus. So for surface disinfection, there is um, not much um, worry. Another thing, obviously, of um, prevention, Patrick touched it, is the blood donation. Germany took some time, but I think now many countries in Europe have now implemented also after the other hepatitis viruses screening that um, blood donations are screened in pool testing for hepatitis E virus so that also the list, um, risk of transfusion transmitted um, viruses is now lowered as another way um, of prevention strategies. Great. Thank you very much, uh, Eike. Uh, we'll switch gears a little bit. Uh, Montserrat, you uh, nicely outlined the different the clinical outcomes of uh, HEV genotype 3 infection. What is known currently about determinants that influence this outcome on the virus side and on the host side? Are there any particular risk factors? Are there any particular viral strains that will behave differently from others? What, what is known about that? So hepatitis E has a very wide uh, clinical spectrum. Of course, most of the cases are purely asymptomatic, but some patients may face severe hepatitis and, of course, uh, extrahepatic manifestations. And uh, the, the precise reasons are still unclear, but there are some host factors that were repeatedly uh, um, found and characterized in, in clinical studies, uh, male sex, uh, uh, age over 50, the presence of diabetes, and of course, the presence of uh, an underlying chronic liver disease predisposes the patients to a more, more severe uh, hepatitis uh, presentation. 
However, uh, what strikes me in my clinical pr uh, practice is that some patients, even in the absence of these risk factors, uh, still present with severe hepatitis, need hospitalization, uh, are jaundice. So these are not all the explanations. Uh, the role of the, the virus is uh, still uh, debated. However, there are some recent data that are linking uh, within genotype 3 uh, clade HEV 3.2 to a more uh, severe disease, notably in Belgium and in Germany. Uh, in Switzerland, we have a very unique situation because the, the viral isolates circulating uh, among infected individuals, but also animals are all genetically very close, um, belonging uh, to a specific subtype 3H. And still, uh, knowing this, we still have a, a very wide clinical spectrum. So to me, this is not uh, the whole explanation. And uh, we looked uh, into it more in detail. And uh, now we have some uh, recent evidence that host genetics also may play a role. Uh, we, we found an enrichment in um, um, genes, in pathogenic uh, var variants among genes encoding for interferon 1 response in infected individuals that developed a severe phenotype in the absence of known risk factors. And I think this uh, deserves for further exploration. That's a very interesting finding, um, and uh, certainly uh, uh, motivation to follow up uh, also with uh, functional studies uh, in the future. Uh, and also the, the virological observations are, are interesting um, that you mentioned. Um, uh, Ike or, or Patrick spontaneously, would you have any molecular uh, uh, explanation as to whether clade 2 should behave uh, worse uh, in patients as compared to clade 1? Uh, or do you think it's more uh, the immunological re reaction to this uh, infection? Uh, I, I guess that that is also open uh, right now. Do you already have some insight? No, maybe I can start. Um, we looked at that at, at, on the sequence pattern and to look for biological signatures. So we have not picked up yet something particular. So I would relate it more to host determinants uh, of that area of these clades differences. Okay. Yeah. Patrick, any other insight from? Yeah, probably genetic factors as well, you know, from ge geographically, you know, as they are, you know, some are circulating in different areas could also play a role. But, you know, I, once I also have a question, considering these acute and chronic liver failures, you know, and we in our center, we usually rely on HIV RNA detection, you know, for really saying this patient has an HIV infection. But I have the feeling that we really uh, lose some patient and we do not detect some infection events just because we are too late, you know, liver damage taking place. So what's your gut feeling about it? Do you think we miss a lot of patients having acute and chronic liver failure because of hepatitis E? Uh, 
I would be cautious and not say maybe a lot, but some we we miss because I think the patients uh, come too late and uh, then we do the PCR, it's negative. Uh, oh, and still some cases may be linked to hepatitis E. So really, but at this stage when the, the patient is not anymore viremic, maybe from a management perspective it doesn't change anything but it would be important to to show uh the the, the important impact of this virus in our patients uh, with chronic with a chronic underlying liver disease of course mm. and, and do you give treatment to acutely infected patients do, do you have this uh, yes, we treated some patients that uh, arrived uh, early, um, but I have to be honest, we we had to give slow doses of ribavirin. Um, in cirrhotic, then you have the hepatorenal syndrome, ribavirin accumulating, anemia, and so on. Uh, and in my experience, um, it went bad for the patients uh, with an elevated mortality rate. So still we don't have an ideal treatment we but i would still try in a patient with a positive viremia that comes with acute and chronic liver failure i would try to cautiously uh, treat with uh, ribavirin one one uh, particular outcome of of hiv genotype 3 infection uh, in the immunocompromised host is uh, chronic um, hepatitis c persistent infection Patrick, I, I believe you you have seen quite a few of these of these patients. Uh, we don't have much time anymore, but could you maybe outline, you know, the, the principles of how you manage uh, uh, this situation and what the challenges are in that area? Yeah, so yeah, I think we have a little time, but I try to be very brief. So I think we have a very good clinical practice guideline from the ESO that I can highly recommend from 2018. And in principle, you know, when you have an HIV infection in an immunosuppressed individual, try to reduce immunosuppression. A patient might clear the virus spontaneously, but once the, the virus is present for three months, it's considered to be chronic. And then you can treat, for example, with ribavirin, which is an off-label therapy for three to six months. And um, the success rate in you know, a multicenter study retrospectively analyzed, uh, recently studies uh, published, showed efficacy in 80, 85%. You can even do retreatment, which is really nice, but you have these side effects. Monserrat already mentioned, uh, you know, in particular anemia, which is a problem and um, yeah, might cause some action. And the challenges that you know I face in clinical practice is really that you want to give this treatment as 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 little as possible, you know. And there we do not have good markers to guide our therapy actually. And even when you, when we have now in, you know improved systems to detect the virus, it gets even more and more difficult, you know. Otherwise, you would say you know after being three or six months of therapy and being RNA negative in stool and plasma, you would say treatment. But now with these new techniques, you know, you still find RNA, you don't know, you doesn't, you know, you know, it's a dilemma for the clinicians because you don't know what it means. And uh, therefore, we really try to, to identify new antivirals. And uh, I want to highlight one study that we recently published. It's a sofosbuvir study where we tried, you know, sofosbuvir, which showed antiviral effect in vitro. And as well, as there was some signs in vivo uh, in patients in a multicenter study together with Berlin and Hamburg. And um, there we saw some decline in the, during the first two weeks of monotherapy of the viral RNA, but then 
it was coming back again. And uh, in the end, now with IKIS team, we, we were able to identify specific mutations that occur during the course of treatment. And so the virus is really escaping this antiviral response of the phosphoria. And, um, you know, last but not least, I want to mention that some centers, uh, you know, for patients who did not clear the virus, they give long-term reperviral treatment because it might improve liver function. Um, however, you know, you need to take into account that the virus might change upon reperviral treatment. You might, you know, acquire um, adaptations to the host and this may, you know, influence certain treatments in the near future. So there is uh, still room for... Uh further developments for uh, patients who do not uh, respond to to uh, ribavirin. Yeah. Well, time advances quickly. And uh, so I would like to have a, a last round and ask the three of you, you know, if there's a key message that you would like to convey uh, to our audience, what would it be? Ike, in terms of uh, basic research, what, what would be your key message? Yeah, I would directly connect to the last topic, uh, develop better antiviral therapies, not e substituting even ribavirin, and that we have safe and effective direct-acting antivirals against viral enzymes, ideally, and also investment of pharmaceutical companies. That would be my key message from the basic science development of antiviral drugs. Excellent. Patrick, for you, in terms of uh, translational research, uh, the same line, you know, we, we need to have a better picture of ATV. I, I alluded to it already, uh, to attract really companies, you know, to go into vaccine strategies, to go into antiviral strategies. And I think we should combine forces, you know, bring data together. And really, you know, it's difficult to treat patients. They should really be sent to, to specific centers, which have the best knowledge about this pathogen. Thank you, Patrick. Montserrat, in terms of clinical research or clinical care, uh, what message would you like to convey to, to our colleagues? I think there are three things I would like to say. First, uh, advise your patient uh, against consumption of raw or undercooked uh, pork or game meat. Uh, look for hepatitis E infection in any patient with an acute and chronic liver failure. And last but not least, screen your immunosuppressed patients for HIV, uh, even if the transaminases are slightly increased. Um, still, it's not optimal in clinical practice. Thank you very much, uh, Montserrat. These are uh, important messages uh, for the clinicians among the uh, audience. Well, you know, it has been wonderful for me to be able to discuss with you, to learn from you. Uh, time goes by too quickly. We've already come uh, to the end. Uh, a great thank you again to Patrick Behrendt, to uh, Montserrat Fraga and to Eike Steinmann. Uh, please tune in next Tuesday, September 26th at 6 p.m. Uh, Central uh, European time for a special edition of the ESL Studio dedicated to highlights from the ESL Seatotic Liver Disease Summit 2023. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.